Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Wednesday, August 8th, 2018, as the Chicago White Sox just finished their series against the New York Yankees. If you didn't catch any of the series, it went as well as you would expect with how the 2018 season is going. The Yankees swept the White Sox. Three much-needed wins for the Yankees. And for the White Sox, they receive another reminder on just how far away they are from being a contending team as they now sit at 41-73 and on the season. We'll recap the series and preview this upcoming weekend series as the Cleveland Indians Visit the White Sox. Joining me to help me recap the Yankees series is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Good evening. Following up on an unexpected result in Tampa, this series was pretty much what I expected. How about you? Yeah, the White Sox were out-talented, even with um, yeah, Aaron Judge not in the lineup. It's just a vastly... More disciplined lineup, deeper lineup, a lot of different looks that they can give you. So, yeah, it, it basically went the way I thought. Just the, I, I think if there was one particular disappointment, it would be how they looked against CC Sabathia. Just, it looked like Sabathia was throwing on like a 50, from like 54 feet away, just uh, no matter what he threw. I mean, he threw a decent game. He was hitting the corners, top of the zone, bottom of the zone, wasn't leaving a lot in the middle, but just the late swings, the defensive swings were just ugly. And I think everybody, even I'm, I'm watching the Yankees broadcast because that's what I get in New York. 
and they were surprised by just how well Sabathia threw and uh, you know, he, he, I guess he racked up a lot of pitches. That's the one drawback. But, you know, from start to finish, he was just getting a ton of swings and misses. Yeah. 12 strikeouts from CC Sabathia is like 2008 version of CC Sabathia, right? Not 2008. Yeah, I think they said it was his, yeah, I think they said it was his highest swinging strike total since like 2012 or My something. Mercy. Mercy. Not good. Not good at all. The only good game was game two, the Tuesday night game in which the White Sox and the Yankees went into extra innings and Jose Abreu had a clutch extra inning home run to tie the game after Giancarlo Stanton hit a two run homer himself. And then the White Sox lost in the 13th inning four to three. So they did play the Yankees tough in one game, but tonight a six run Second inning just did the White Sox in, even though they started off really well scoring two runs in the first inning and it just spiraled out of control. And where we're going to pick up as far as this conversation, and again, we do this show for fellow White Sox fans, and right now the conversation has went in White Sox fandom is when is Aloy Jimenez coming up to what is wrong with Yohan Makata again? After after Tuesday night's game, manager Rick Renteria addressed Mikata's approach at the plate and about the barrage of strikeouts. Quote, at some point you hit a point of frustration where you say, man, I have to pull the trigger on particular pitches. I think he's finally reached that point. So now it's about getting over that and seeing himself defend and battle and put balls in play and fight pitches. He has a great eye on balls for everything in the zone. Now it's about battling tough pitches in certain situations, end quote. That was for manager Rick Brenteria after Tuesday night's game. Tonight, on Wednesday, Mikata went one for four with two more strikeouts. In the month of August, Yohan Mikata is batting four for 32 with 19 strikeouts. In the last month, Mikata is batting 14 for 91 with 39 strikeouts. What I feel like is the third time I've asked you this question in this season, Jim. What's wrong with Mikata? Well, it seems like he's fighting a, you know, multiple front war. He's got the patience being used against him, and it's kind of like what we saw and what we've been following with Zach Collins, um, that that plate discipline without mm-hmm. works is dead, and that you need to actually, you know, whether it's to the umpires or, and I don't think there's like an, uh, a you know a nationwide umpire conspiracy, but I think just when it comes to the kind of pitches you get and the way that pitchers go after you, and, and a lot of these called strike threes are taken are on, you know, 0-2 counts, 1-2 counts, you know, it's like they're they're attacking him. It's not like 3-2, he's not working these these prolonged battles and ending in the wrong way. It's just he's not putting up much of a fight right now. And I think it's just contact too. He's just, I, I think his uh, entire approach has been just unglued and, and the the single that he had was just this you know flipped single to left field he doesn't really have many of those um the defense not to, i wouldn't say defensive because that's negative connotation but just didn't do too much with it redirected the the pitch basically just sent in left field and and that's a swing i hadn't seen much of him from and he worked a 3-1 count uh off severino so it, it, it seemed like that was a case where he was in control both in the count and physically you know not trying to make up for a slump with one swing but just trying to rebuild an offensive approach. And that was, you know, a nice moment. And then he struck out in his last at bat. So it's, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, these gains are very limited. But, you know, that that kind of uh, approach that he had against Severino um, was the kind of thing that he might need more of, just contact. Contact, putting the ball in play, running. You know, not walking back to the dugout two out of three times. I, you know, that just seems incredibly damaging. And, you know, I, I know I've made the the 
comparison before, or you know, that he kind of reminded me of Byron Buxton a little bit, uh, coming up to the minors, and that he was too talented to hold down or really learn meaningfully in the minors, but might have to be sent down a time or two to figure stuff out. And you know, he's not at that point yet, but the strikeouts are getting there. And you know, he's when you're striking out 40 plus percent of the time, um, that should you know, and Renteria alluded to it, should be a come to Jesus moment. Looking at Mikata's Z-Swing numbers, which you can find on Fangraphs, and Z-Swing's a percent of swings at pitches in the strike zone. From just the eyes and perception watching Mikata, I always feel like he does watch a lot of strikes go by him early on in the count. And before tonight's game, Mikata's Z-Swing was at 63.1%. Okay, I have no idea what that means compared to other hitters. So I pulled two other young hitters that are doing quite well this year. Juan Soto for the Washington Nationals and Glaber Torres for the New York Yankees. Juan Soto is swinging 60.5% of pitches in the strike zone. So about 2.5% less than Mikata. Glaber Torres is swinging at 69.3% of pitches in the strike zone. So more than 6% than Mikata is. The amount of contact Mikata is making on pitches in the strike zone, which is Z-swing contact, is 79.1%. So Mikata makes contact 79% of the pitches in the strike zone. Juan Soto is at 85.9%, and Glaber Torres is at 82.3%. Jim, is the 3 to 6% difference in contact on pitches in the strike zone going to be the difference maker in the seasons that Yuan Mikata is having and the outstanding seasons that Juan Soto and Gleyber Torres is having. It's a start. You know, I think there's definitely when it comes to, you know, watching what Soto does to baseballs, you know, there's a, um, you know, quality of contact too. I mean, it's not just the fact that he's putting the ball, uh, putting the bat in the ball, but that the, the barrel goes on the ball. And I'm looking up Larry, Gar- Larry Garcia because he had a similar problem uh, coming up and, you know, switch hitters. And I've been watching Moncada with, with, uh, both Larry and, uh, Yolmer Sanchez in mind as guys who had a hard time switch hitting at first and eventually figured out making better contact. Where are you zone numbers? <laughs> Pardon me for this incredibly professional display. All right. So, you know, looking at his uh, plate discipline over the years, um, yeah, he had the, the zone swings are up over 70%. Zone contact was in the seventies, uh, like 76, 77, and then when he finally broke through, he got up to 87%. So, you know, a 10% jump in contact, um, you know, went a long way. It was a, it was a 7% jump overall in contact. And, you know, given that he, uh, a guy like him, you know, when he has an aggressive approach, that means he strikes out less just because he doesn't get into two strike counts when he's able to put more balls in play. And I think for Moncada, it's a similar deal where, you know, it doesn't seem like much, you know, 10% more zone contact. But uh, if he can do that, it just... Yeah, and, and we saw Larry, too, improve. Just, you know, when you watch him hit, you understand, okay, he's more of a threat. You know, just there's a reliable swing that puts the bat on the ball when it's in the zone. When he's being pitched to, well, when somebody makes a mistake, he makes contact with it. With Moncada, you know, it's he's not quite there yet. And I think when, you're, when your zone contact rate is in the mid-70s, um, then that just means not only is it uh, that your you know overall contact is not putting the ball in play, but just you're fouling off pitches too. You're fouling off mistakes. You're not doing as much as you can with you know hittable strikes, and then you know you're not doing anything with the uh, edge pitches, uh, as we've seen with Mancada the strikeout tonight. Both uh, swinging, but one was a slider down and in. The other was a I think a fastball riding up and to the 
up in the outer part of the zone, but just swung through it. And I think that's the kind of thing where if he's not hitting the more hittable pitches in the in the middle of the zone, then the edges are just going to kill him. So yeah, I think when it comes to the you know his overall success, I, I think that yeah that putting the bat on the ball when strikes are in the zone, I mean, it's very simple to say, but I think that's just where he needs to start. He's going to strike out a lot, but, you know, we were expecting 30%, 32% for a strikeout rate. And when it's, you know, over 40, like this stretch, it's just untenable. Yeah. Mikata's season slash line at the moment is 217 with a 300 on base percentage and slugging 391. You mentioned Lurie Garcia. Lurie Garcia is hitting 280, 310, and 394, which is a little bit better as far as OPS wise than Mankata. Uh, but if you took Garcia's ability to make contact to put the ball in play and you fuse that with Mikata's ability to take walks, you're onto something. Yeah. And that path is what I think a lot of White Sox fans were hoping to see from Mikata. Now there's still time. There's still a month and a half left of the season that Mikata can turn it on, get red hot and his season numbers could look better. We're still far away from this being a lost season, right, Jim? Yeah, and and but but you mentioned, uh, and we can make anything about Eloy Jimenez if we want to. But when it comes to Jimenez, um, you know, this is why I'm on the side of bringing him up, just because you know Makata say if he keeps going and he, and you know he, he maintains these struggles through the end of the year, that's a long time to struggle. That's a long time to waver. It's a long time for fans to chew on it. It's a long winter to think about what his projections will look like next year. But with like Jimenez, if he comes up and has like a rough month in August and then September rosters are expanded. So there's no, you know, I guess no real, um, you know, pressure to play him. No reason to play him in tough matchups. You can ease him into the action. Um, yeah, you don't have to worry about demoting him if things don't go well. He can use the winter. He can use the winter to evaluate himself, work on what he needs to work on. Spring training, there can be, you know, a, a plan of action and then see how he looks like in spring training before, you know, calling him up if he has to start the year in AAA to get back on track, you know, or, you know, see if they, you know, think they can do it and see if they can somehow get that extra year of service time or whatever, you know, so be it. Uh, but if you bring him up now, you can at least, you know, if he mashes, great. If he has, uh, you know, if he strikes out more than you think and just the quality of the bats aren't there, you have a lot of time to reconsider your next move and without anybody panicking about, you know, because a season starting assignment in AAA is a lot different from being sent down there in June. Really good point, Jim. My last point that I have about the Mikata topic is that Mikata's season OPS is 690. So is Tim Anderson's. Yomer Sanchez OPS is 678. None of these are good. Yeah. Where is the outcry for Tim Anderson and Yomer Sanchez's struggles? Well, I mean, Sanchez, we were talking about trading him last year. <laughs> to, uh, That's true. If yeah. Jim and I were the GM, Yomer Sanchez would be on the Angels right now. Yep. So, you know, <laughs> with you know, the expectations are far lower with Anderson. You know, he's playing decent defense. The errors have calmed down. I think if you're making errors at the rate he was making them in April and May, then you would expect the you know similar conversation, but he's at least playing you know good defense at shortstop, and so you know it masks his struggles a little bit. He's already under contract in some ways. He's he's already a given. You know, no matter what happens, uh, his extension is signed. But yeah, I think Moncada is just new, and strikeouts are more frustrating than weak contact and uh, not drawing walks. In the case of Anderson, who hasn't walked unintentionally since I think June twenty sixth, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had an intentional walk along the way, but otherwise, yeah, he wouldn't mm. entire month of July without a walk. How does that happen? 
oh, I mean, we've seen it. I mean, <laughs> I know. I'm yeah. just, it's a rhetorical Brett Murrell, question. Josh Begley, Jeff Keppinger, <laughs> Diane Vecieto, <laughs> Tim Anderson the first time. <laughs> just, oh, yeah. man. Man alive. Take your walks, boys. Take your free passes. Oh. Well, Tim Anderson did hit a home run tonight. So he now has 15 on the season. He's just five short of 20 home runs where he could be a 2020 hitter 20. with 20 home runs and 20 stolen bases and 20 walks. He at least and got th- that. So 2020, <laughs> 20, <laughs> baseball gods. Thank you very much. Oh man. That's depressing. No, it's just, it, obviously, as I mentioned in the intro, this series is a good reminder on how far away this team is from being competitive and being a contender and there's going to be another reminder as later in the show we'll preview the upcoming weekend series as the Cleveland Indians stroll into town and they're starting to play their best baseball of the season despite still having some iffy problems with the bullpen uh, in the back end as Francisco Lindor hit a walk-off home run tonight to help beat the Minnesota Twins 5-2. to the other part of the rebuild is obviously when you look at the infield and Mikata and Anderson, which we just spoke about, is the starting pitching. And Lucas Giolito did not have a good second inning tonight, Jim. He allowed six runs capped by a Jean-Carlo Stan Grand Slam. Now, Giolito's final numbers for Wednesday's game were five innings pitched, six hits allowed, seven earned runs with three walks and seven strikeouts. The seven strikeouts at three walks is good. He's starting to strike out more batters frequently than walking them. Giolito's season ERA is now 6.23. And Jim, Giolito was having success with the changeup early, but what caused the struggles in tonight's game? Well, he just was not hitting the mitts. I mean, it really didn't matter where Kevin Smith set up. He was going to miss it. Uh, the, the changeup was good, but yeah, the changeup, I think, when it comes to his approach and you know most pitchers' approach is that if you're not you know if they don't give you reason to respect the fastball, the changeup loses something. And I think they were swinging aggressively at it early on, but then second inning, especially as the base runners piled up, and especially after he hit Gardner uh, with a curveball, um, and then fell behind Stanton three three zero, and just uh, you know I guess the you know when you reconsider it and seeing Stanton hit a slam on a middle middle fastball. You know, you maybe think then that that's a time to uh, pull the same sided change up and kind of rethink it. But it just came down to fastball command just being pretty much non-existent early on. And, um, you know, it is a, st- a step back because, you know, we talked about before with um, uh, on Monday's show with Kevin Smith and Omar Narvaez and the fact that uh, Smith called a bad game his last time out and Narvaez trusted the change up and, um you know, that basically was the big difference between those two starts based on the way Giolito was throwing and commanding. This time around, you know, Smith, I think, was trying to uh, adhere to that game plan with a lot of change-ups, working down the zone, down the zone. And uh, unfortunately, the command, the counts just didn't allow him to really call that game when, and Giolito didn't execute it. So I think this case, um, it kind of, you know, settled the catcher disparity we were talking about the last time. And this one was, was entirely on him and his lack of command. We did get a fan question about Lucas Giolito. This comes from Patrick Roth on Twitter. And Patrick is asking if Lucas Giolito is a bust. And I think it's a bit early to call him that. But if Lucas Giolito doesn't pan out, Jim, what does that do for the White Sox rebuild? Does it push back the contention window to 2021 or 2022? No, I think, um, 
if one of Lopez or Giolito sticks by the end of the year, and Lopez threw really well um, on Tuesday, I, I think uh, <laughs> we should mention that a little bit, that uh, he, the, speaking of fastball command, he was somebody who had it and was working it very well and effectively. And I think, you know, he's had a couple starts in a row now um, that you'd like to see from him. So if he finishes the year strong, he looks like a fixture. Um, then, you know, I think you're getting what you could expect, like the median outcome out of those two pitchers. Dane Dunning, I think, is somewhat of a tiebreaker on the deal. I, I think in order for that deal to make sense for the White Sox to come away as winners of that deal, or at least coming away good enough, they need you know, more than they need Adam Eaton's equivalent in at least uh, quality or quantity. So if they get two starters out of it, great. Uh, if they get one really good starter out of it, good enough. Um, but having one adequate back end of the rotation starter and nobody else um, is kind of a waste opportunity. So right now the jury's still out on that. And, uh, you know, Giolito, you know, part of the deal with this rebuild and, and why, you know, Rick Hans mentioned it, uh, one of his favorite terms is critical mass, you know, coming up with a critical mass of prospects so that if one fails, another one can surprise, you know, overachieve and you, you're still at the same net number. So I think that's the case with, um, you know, Dylan C stepping up, um, Dane Dunning before his injury, um, really performing well. I, I think those are the kind of developments that make you feel a bit better about the pitching depth, even when guys like Giolito and uh, Alec Hansen have setbacks. So, yeah, I think right now Kopech is the guy who might be more make or break when it comes to one pitcher. Uh, uh, you know, it's not that, you know, all the pressure's on him, but uh, I think the White Sox do have star aspirations for him, or at least, you know, number two starter. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe number one is, um, you know, really setting the expectations too high for any pitcher. But I think a number two starter is more reasonable. And, you know, if they get that out of him, then I think that makes up, you know, that, covers for what they need to get from Giolito and Lopez and everybody else. So there's still a long way to go. I, I don't think Giolito had any, uh, you know, individually had any impact on the timetable the way somebody with more standout stuff like Kopech would. So, yeah, I think, you know, we have to kind of keep the Gavin Floyd thing in mind and just hope that he can figure out and, and be somebody who's, you know, capable of surprising from the fourth spot, but, um, you know, it doesn't quite have the stuff to, and by stuff I include in command to, you know, pitch above average on a start-to-start basis like, you know, um, you know, Jose Quintana or whoever did. Now, it's a bit different between pitchers and position players because position players, obviously, like Yohan Makata, can play every single day. He's got a month and a half left to go of the season. Starting pitchers, obviously, only pitch every fifth game. And Lucas Giolito has, what, six, seven more starts left in 2018, Jim, uh, is this a lost season for Lucas Giolito? No, not not at this stage because it's a rebuilding year. Um, failing counts. I think if he's failing in the major leagues, then you know it gives him the opportunity to learn what didn't work, what he needs to improve, and you know it's not like the wins were going to count anyway. So you know it's not really lost at this point because he's not he has nowhere to go but down. <laughs> I guess when it comes to depth chart organizationally, he's already at the top. So he just kind of has to hold his ground. He's not holding his ground with performance this year as much as circumstances, but, um, you know, there's a chance that his, you know, lack of progress when it comes to performance, you know, his ERA is above six and so forth. Um, you know, maybe that helps him prepare better for next year and, uh, get over whatever he needs to get over, whether it's mentally, whether it's physically, whether it's, you know, kind of, uh, issues with, uh, consistency in his delivery, um, you know, gives him a lot to chew on. So, 
I wouldn't call it a lost year. I'd call it more a lost year if you were injured or something like that. But um, you mentioned that the, uh, you know, before we get into the Indian series, you know, talking about the uh, Indians with the Lindor Homer, you know, settling that game. Um, Miguel Sano hit the game tying Homer, I think in the ninth, uh, late game tying Homer. He's coming back from a lengthy, uh, or at least a surprising um, demotion to a ball. And it was, he was gone for basically a month and a half. And he's come back and he looks better now. Um, he was batting 197, around 200 when he was demoted. Uh, now he's hitting the ball pretty hard. He's drawing walks. He's got six walks in 10 games. He's got now four extra base hits in 11 games. Uh, the bat's starting to come around. So I'm going to be interested in watching him the rest of the season just so, you know, when it comes to guys like Giolito and Mancada and, you know, players who have severe struggles, maybe next year we're talking about. Uh, and if they need to be sent down, not always the end of the world. Yeah, because Giolito does have that one option left, right? The White Sox still yes. have that in their back pocket for 2019. Honestly, if Giolito had two options left, Jim, I feel like he would be in Charlotte yep. right now. Yeah, I think his his particular problems are command and delivery based. And I think Mancada, you know, same thing where it's not a matter of, you know, great pitchers acing him necessarily. It's a matter of, you know, making better contact and, um, you know, kind of working a little bit on the edges of his uh, contact. And I think uh, that's something that could also be worked on the minors, you know, should it come to that. But I think at this point, uh, given the season is what it is um, and, and there's nothing to, you know, there, there's only a limited amount of time left in the minors. He had to come back up anyway. Maybe it's probably better off, you know, going the distance this year and then reevaluating going into next season. Okay. Before we preview the Indian series, Jose Abreu, red hot. Last month, he's 28 for 94 batting, seven doubles, eight home runs. He's got 18 runs batted in. If you were an opposing GM, do you think about claiming Abreu if he's put on the waiver wire? Certainly. Especially if you need a first baseman or if you're blocking a team that might really use him. Would you, after claiming, make the deal? Would you actually put in a legitimate proposal to acquire Abreu? Probably not. It's just something I've been pondering because he is hot. And we, we've seen Abreu when he's hot. You can get a, a few more weeks, if not a hot month out of him. If a team needs a first baseman, man, I don't know if Jose Abreu is put on the waiver wire. I have no idea who of the White Sox are currently on the waiver wire. Probably everybody. Right. So if Abreu's on there, I, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be tempted if I was a contending team that needed a bat because I think Abreu's got at least a couple more weeks, if not another good month in him uh, before he goes back to his normal state. And that could be the difference maker in a lot of races right now. Uh, I don't know, not so much maybe in the American League, but definitely in the National League, Wink, Colorado. Uh, and you yeah. still have that arbitration year. Uh, that So it, it's be undecided, really, until you go to arbitration on how much you have to pay Jose Abreu next year. But it was just something that kind of floated in the back of my mind watching tonight's game and seeing how well Abreu's hitting and wondering, hmm, could he be a possibility? Yeah, I think a team would definitely claim him, um, or at least most likely claim him. But when it comes to, you know, his trade market last year when he led the league in total bases and there wasn't a deal that came close, close to completion, I don't think the White Sox would be able to uh, have enough leverage to get a deal to their liking with only one team involved. Good point. Before we preview the Cleveland Indians series, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Whether you're heading to a baseball game or concert this summer, SeatGeek has you covered. 
SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. By searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value, SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. I use SeatGeek to buy four tickets for this Saturday's game against the Cleveland Indians as it's Jim Tomey bobblehead day, and it's by far the easiest way I found to shop for White Sox tickets. Best part is that Sox Machine listeners get to save $20 off on your first purchase. So if you haven't used SeatGeek before and you would like to go get Jim Tomey's bobblehead or just go to any of the games this weekend, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event, we have the tickets. And now previewing this weekend series as the Chicago White Sox will be facing the Cleveland Indians who visit the South Side. The Indians are 63-50 and 50 on the year. They're 10 games ahead of the Minnesota Twins in the American League Central. As I mentioned earlier on the show, Francisco Lindor had a walk-off home run to beat the Twins today. And the pitching probables for this series, <laughs> it's, it's a doozy for White Sox hitters. They will not get a break over the weekend. For the Cleveland Indians on Friday night, game starts at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. It is Shane Bieber against Carlos Rodon for the White Sox, who has been red hot himself on the mound. On Saturday night at 6.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Trevor Bauer, who might be in contention for the American League Cy Young against Chris Sale, is going up against James Shields. And on Sunday, August 12th, this is a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Carlos Carrasco against Dylan Covey. Jim, I have a feeling this series could go worse for the White Sox than this previous Yankees one. How are you feeling about this weekend series as Cleveland comes into town? Not great. Um, you know, perhaps the opener on Friday, given that the White Sox bullpen is back, you know, um, it's the benefit of having two blowouts is that you can, you know, Rick Renteria could calm down a little bit with pitcher switching uh, and, and, you know, yeah, after coming off a 13 inning game on Tuesday, only needed two relievers to get their Wednesday of day off. So he should be able to have a full complement of relievers and then having Carlos Rodon start a series, um, you know, might be able to preserve his pitching staff and be able to line up situations better for himself. So I'm hoping the first game with Rodon against Bieber, Bieber looks pretty straightforward. You know, he's not overpowering. He's got, you know, some movement on his fastball, which is like 93 and, Slider curve, change up, you know, nothing jumps off the page, but he's been okay so far. Um, you know, that's a matchup that kind of tilts in the Sox favor. Then after that gets pretty tough, especially Carrasco has been, I think a little bit iffy, uh, lately, but, um, yeah, I'm just checking to make sure it's case. Nope. He's been good. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's always pitched well against the White Sox. So, you know, especially against Dylan Covey, who's again, struggled to get through, one turn through, or at least the second time through the order. And then Bauer, yeah, doing what he is doing doesn't look good. So I think Friday is the hope and then uh, otherwise hope for randomness. Yeah, Friday, I, you know, Rodon's been good against Cleveland in his career, in his young career. So I, I think if you're going to go to any of the games hoping that their White Sox are going to win, 
Friday night is your best chance. Uh, I don't know how James Shields is going to handle as far as Cleveland. The only thing I'm confident in is that he's going to pitch seven innings, whether (laughs) he's doing well or not. And then Sunday with Dylan Covey. And we could wrap up the show on this last topic. Dylan Covey did not pitch well on Monday. He was able to get through the first part of the lineup unscathed, looked really good. And the second time facing the lineup just completely fell apart. We've talked about this a couple of times on this show, Jim. When do the White Sox pull the trigger and move Dylan Covey to the bullpen? Because it's pretty clear that this is a starting pitcher who shouldn't be facing a lineup a second or third time through the order, but can provide you a valuable service that he can face an order a lineup one time through and maybe eat two to three innings in every outing that he makes an appearance in. Really, um, whenever they want to call it Michael Kopech, you know, that's that's the easy swap right there. You, know, you put Kopech in the rotation, put Covey in the bullpen, you make Rick Renneria's job easier, whether you use him as a closer or just as somebody who can bridge multiple innings, maybe be like a... Um, you know, set up man or, or set up bridge all by himself uh, with this particular bullpen. Um, you know, that would seem to be the call on um, Kopech wants to be called up too. So it's a, uh, yes, he does. Yeah. So um, he's not being a jerk about it, but he's, uh, you know, made his feelings known to uh, Kevin Powell on his podcast. So uh, that'll, you know, I wonder how long the Sox can go um, and not call up Kopech because there is a move that's right there to be made. I 100% agree with you. Cause what, you know what Kopech is going to do? You want me to get out? Fine. I'm going to throw 85% fastballs because nobody in this level can touch it. And I'm going to look awesome. And you're still going to wonder how the changeup and curveball is going to be. But if my job right now is just to get outs, I'm going to lean on the fastball and he's going to look good. It's time to call him up and have him tested and see how well that fastball does in the major league level. Because uh, as we've learned tonight with Lucas Chilito, uh, if you can't command it, it doesn't matter how hard you throw it. Uh, it could be a rough night in a hurry, but it can be beneficial because in 2018, it is a rebuilding year. It is about learning and trying to move forward. But it does have to be reiterated after this series against the Yankees and probably after this weekend White Sox are still long ways away from being considered a contending team. And these are some pretty harsh lessons that they are learning along the way. That will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening to the live stream on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. If you never get a chance to listen to the live stream, no worries. Every recording is uploaded into our podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. Socks Machine Live is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, 
only on Showtime.